Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have back with me today the one and only Dr. Dave Berman, who, listeners will know, has been on doing some very interesting podcasts in the past around a variety of topics, including OB anesthesia, and I'm excited to have him back because today we're going to do a really relevant topic and talk about non-obstetric surgery in pregnant patients, uh, which I think is a really relevant topic for anyone out there who may be taking care of someone doing whatever surgery it might be, but who happens to be pregnant. So Dave, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Great to be back. All right. Dave, why don't you start out by telling me kind of what we're going to talk about today and why it's relevant. So today we're going to be talking about a subject that's pretty scary but not actually as bad as it sounds. Imagine that you're the CA3 on call uh, and you get a call from the general surgery consult resident that a patient's coming for an appendectomy. I think we've all been in this scenario. She's otherwise healthy except that she's 17 weeks pregnant. So obviously the first thing that goes through your head is this is probably not an ideal scenario. But the second thought is what do we do about this situation? It's a really annoying situation, but it's a common topic. It's common both in our professional life and also potentially in your own life with family and friends. It's also a frequently tested board situation and it's something that's clinically relevant. So let's spend the next bit of time talking about the management of the non-obstetric surgery in pregnancy. Great. I get that this is important, and we probably see it a lot. Uh, we certainly hear at Hopkins. Um, but how common is it in general? Are, are folks out there likely to see this pretty often? So you'd think it's a rare situation, but it's actually not that rare. Most studies put the incidence at around 0.5 to 1% of all pregnancies. So just remember that when we're talking about non-OB surgeries in pregnancy, we're talking about non-obstetric surgeries rather than all surgeries on pregnant women. If you include things like cerclages um, or something of that sort, it's significantly more common to do surgeries in pregnant women other than delivery. But common surgeries that happen to young people, appendectomies, cholecystectomies, trauma, are common indications for surgeries, as well as things that happen as a result of pregnancy-related changes. Pregnancies associated with a decrease in systemic vascular resistance and an increase in cardiac output, as well as lots of hematologic changes, including uh, dilutional anemia of pregnancy, which can cause a risk 
of aneurysm or AVM rupture, specifically intracranial. And so all things considered, it's actually not that rare a situation, and chances are that you'll encounter a pregnant patient for non-OB surgery at least once in your training. Additionally, if you train at an academic center, we get a lot of these patients transferred in. So if you think about it, at Hopkins, we do um, between our two sites about 4,500 deliveries a year. Um, So you'd think that we only do 0.5 to 1%, but our percentage of pregnant women who've had interventions is significantly higher because we're a tertiary center. Yeah, and I'll tell you, when I hear intracranial disaster in a pregnant woman or really any major surgery in a pregnant woman, it sounds scary to me. So uh, I'm glad you're here to talk about it. If you could give me, let's say, you know, the 30,000-foot view on the basics of how to manage these patients, what are some of the key things to know? So the most helpful thing, the most helpful document is a joint statement between the American College of OBGYN and the American Society of Anesthesiologists that talked about non-OB surgery in pregnancy and was published in 2017. Jed, I think you're going to include the reference uh, page. Yes, that will have those included. Um, So in this document, they voice a number of overarching statements and principles, and they're key to establish – all this baseline ground rules whenever we're talking about a non-OB surgery in pregnancy. First things first, a woman should never be declined medically necessary surgery simply because she's pregnant. It's obvious, but it's sometimes a tough sell to our surgical colleagues, whether it's for fear of litigation, concern for causing undue harm to mother or fetus, or other reasons. uh, People don't love intervening on pregnant women. But if you have a A surgeon who says, normally we treat this distal radial fracture surgically, but she's pregnant, so we'll just cast her splint. That's not a great answer. If she needs the surgery medically, it doesn't matter that she's pregnant. We'll certainly change our management, but it doesn't matter. Now that we have that established, it's important to set some other ground rules. If we need to perform surgery in pregnancy, but it can wait, we should do it in the second trimester. This balances the risks of the first trimester, namely spontaneous abortion and exposure during organogenesis, with the risks of surgery in the third trimester, namely preterm labor. Another specific thing to remember is that while there exists some controversy about specific agents in terms of neurotoxicity in the developing brain, anesthesia in pregnancy is overall really safe if used correctly and for an indicated procedure. As we'll discuss later, while there may be some concerns about teratogenicity of certain agents, the biggest things likely to cause fetal harm are fetal malperfusion. This happens worst during periods of maternal hypercarbia, acidemia, and hypoxemia. And another thing we should discuss is where to do the surgery. A pregnant woman who needs a coli shouldn't ideally be done at a freestanding ambulatory surgery center that doesn't have OB and pediatrics availability. If there's even a thought about delivering, a credentialed provider needs to be available. And the last thing to think about is that the ACOG statement reminds us that all pregnant women are at high risk for venous thromboembolism, and therefore we should take appropriate precautions to minimize that risk in the perioperative period. Great. All right. So that's kind of the big arching overview of where to look and what to consider uh, about these patients when they come in. So now let's narrow down the details a little further. Tell me more about the management strategies and specifics for these patients. When I'm on call and I get told that there's a pregnant woman coming for surgery, I have a few big questions. The first is, why me? But I ask 
what the case is, how urgent it is, how pregnant the patient is, and what her pregnancy has been like thus far in terms of complications or any issues with maternal or fetal issues throughout the pregnancy. These questions will guide my management and my discussions with our surgical colleagues who are going to be doing the procedure as well as our obstetricians and other physicians who need to be involved. If the case is a general surgical case, not requiring any specific anesthetic expertise, any anesthesiologist should be able to handle it. But ideally, someone with OB experience is preferred. That doesn't mean you have to be a fellowship-trained obstetric anesthesiologist, but maybe someone who takes call once in a while. Um, in specific cases, for instance, cardiac surgery, it probably makes more sense for the anesthesiologist who routinely does these specialized cases to be steering the ship in consultation with an OB anesthesiologist and or a maternal fetal medicine doc. In terms of airway-specific concerns, pregnancy and the difficult airway go hand in hand. While thankfully extremely rare causes of maternal mortality, under 1% of maternal mortality in the U.S. is due to anesthesia-related complications, the airway is still a concern for us. We recommend all of the difficult airway equipment be available and to ask the question of whether the airway needs to be managed at all. For an orthopedic procedure amenable to a peripheral block or neuraxial, these are completely reasonable options that avoid airway instrumentation. While the discussion about full stomach status is beyond the scope of this talk, suffice it to say that the notion that all women who have a positive pregnancy test are automatically full stomachs is antiquated and overly restrictive. Interesting. So I bet that's a little controversial. Can you tell me more about it? If you look at studies of gastric residual estimation on ultrasound, it seems as if gastric emptying is not delayed in pregnancy until the onset of labor or an intra-abdominal process. If the patient's appropriately NPO, the main concern is lower esophageal sphincter tone relaxation. However, one would argue that we should treat these patients the same as any other patient with GERD. That being said, if a pregnant woman is coming for abdominal surgery, chances are even if she wasn't pregnant, she'd probably be considered a full stomach if she had appendicitis with vomiting. So that's something to think about. If cricoid pressure will make your, your laryngoscopy more difficult and there's little evidence to support it, should we be doing it routinely on pregnant women during induction? That's definitely a topic of debate within our society, but suffice it to say that pregnancy alone doesn't make you an automatic full stomach, especially for a procedure that could be done under mild sedation. All right. That sounds reasonable. And as you said, pregnancy aside, there's a lot of controversy over cricoid pressure, uh, which is not the topic of our current debate, but people can certainly look more into that. So you mentioned before that there are a lot of changes that go along with pregnancy. We've heard a little, you mentioned a few of the cardiopulmonary physiologic changes that happen. So what are some of those maybe review in a little more detail for me and how do they impact our management of these patients? Briefly, pregnancy is associated with a chronic but incompletely compensated respiratory alkalosis. It depends on the trimester, but as a rule of thumb, a normal PaCO2 in pregnancy is around 30 to 32, and a normal bicarbonate is around 20 to 22. What that means is that if you mechanically ventilate a pregnant woman and you have a target PaCO2 of 40, it will cause severe hypercarbia and therefore acidemia. Pregnancies also associated with a decrease in anesthetic requirements, but most of those are spinal reflexes. While not well studied, it seems as if the awareness threshold in pregnancy may not be different than in non-pregnant patients. Additionally, pregnant patients have an increase in circulating plasma volume, but a decrease in hematocrit. 
This is adaptive to decrease RBC mass loss during delivery. But remember that pregnancy is also a hyperdynamic state, in addition to being associated with an expansion in plasma volume. So under GA, I typically target an end-tidal CO2 of 25 to 30, and for longer procedures, I base my ventilation off arterial blood gases and uh, pH measurements. Great. Now, you threw a lot of numbers out there. Talk to me about concerns of specific drugs and gases we use in anesthesia. What are the big risks, and what are some things we'd want to think about when designing an anesthetic plan for a pregnant woman? Big picture, we have to remember something. Nobody likes to do studies on pregnant women. In the aging and soon-to-be-replaced FDA classification of ABCDX, most drugs are category C. There's no data either way. That doesn't mean they're harmful by any stretch, but it means there isn't a whole lot of data because nobody studies pregnant women. Benzodiazepines got a bad rap in the 1970s because it was said that they were associated with craniofacial abnormalities. However, these studies were largely questionnaires of women whose children had abnormalities, asking them what drugs they might have used. However, these women had a high coincidence of smoking and alcohol abuse, both known risk factors for craniofacial abnormality. It appears unlikely based on recent data that small doses of perioperative benzos would be associated with long-lasting fetal harm, especially after the palate is already formed, but they're still sometimes avoided for legal risk, if nothing else. That said, if I have a 32-week pregnant woman coming for a wrist procedure, I will certainly give serious thought to giving her a single dose of benazolam, as that is unlikely to cleft her palate if it's already not clefted. Nitrous oxide is associated with inhibition of methionine synthetase and therefore a decrease in bone marrow production as well as potential posterior column deficits with chronic use. Short-term perioperative use is likely not a problem, but it hasn't been well studied. Unfortunately, um, nitrous oxide doesn't have an FDA classification because the FDA doesn't classify medical gases, but Nitrous oxide has also been used for labor analgesia extensively throughout the world and is increasing in use in the United States without seeming adverse fetal effects. Ondansetron has been the treatment of choice for quite a while in terms of hyperemesis. However, it's been associated recently with both craniofacial abnormalities and congenital cardiac defects. Both of these are weak associations, but there is now some controversy. It's likely that these women got high doses of antiemetics because they had hyperemesis, which is associated with weight loss, hypovolemia, and electrolyte abnormalities that predispose to fetal harm. A small single dose is unlikely to cause harm, but this may be somewhat controversial. There's also a recent FDA black box warning against the use of general inhaled agents in the third trimester of pregnancy or in infancy. And it applies to inhaled agents and propofol, but the inhalational agents are the most studied in terms of neuroapoptosis. Some advocate for TIVA in pregnancy to avoid fetal exposure to inhalational agents. At our institution, that's a case-by-case basis. When I'm doing a fetal surgery, I often run a volatile agent because it's helpful for uterine relaxation, which is necessary for these procedures. We often run nitroglycerin as well, but that's sometimes not enough to give surgical relaxation for an open uterine surgery. Muscle relaxant is a routine for tracheal intubation, and therefore we need to think about reversal strategies. Neostigmine typically crosses the placenta to a greater degree than glycopyrrolate, and therefore fetal bradycardia may occur with reversal. Some advocate for combining neostigmine and atropine 
as atropine does cross the placenta. But others argue that in the age of Sugamidex, that we should just use Sugamidex. Sugamidex is known to bind certain steroid hormones in plasma, but its effects on pregnancy are really unknown. Simulated placental models show minimal placental transfer, but its hormone effects aren't well studied in pregnancy. At our institution, we routinely use Sugamidex because our thought is that the the risk of inadequate reversal likely outweighs the theoretical risk of the hormonal effects of Sugamidex, especially when you combine in in a fetal surgery patient um, high doses of magnesium for uterine relaxation that really precipitates an extubation failure, especially if you're relaxing the patient. So for us, we prefer a completely reversed patient. That makes a lot of sense to me. And that's a great overview of the drug choices in these cases. What about obstetric concerns? And how about steroids for fetal lung maturity? And we talk about that a lot. People hear about that a lot. Um, Tell me about that stuff. Obviously, we want to ensure that the fetal status is stable. The best way for us to do that directly is to ensure adequate maternal oxygenation, hemodynamics, and positioning. But we definitely have some other concerns that you mentioned. Pregnant women are at high risk for venous thromboembolism at all stages of pregnancy and postpartum as well. So we should have a plan in place for decreasing that risk. Mechanical devices are low risk and helpful, but you should really think about pharmacologic prevention. At our institution, we routinely employ sub-Q heparin as primary prophylaxis and Lovenox as prophylaxis for higher risk patients or treatment dose for patients with existing venous thromboembolic disease. Consideration of heparin should be dictated by the surgical procedure. We should think about using TXA or Amacar. Um, They have been ideally studied in postpartum hemorrhage patients. They haven't been well studied on women who are pregnant. So the use should be case by case. The discussion about beta-methasone administration and timing should ideally be a group discussion between us, the surgical team, the MFMOB team, and the neonatology team. The timing of surgical intervention can sometimes be tricky, but it's important to address. The good thing about beta-methasone is that it does potentially decrease the risk of postoperative nausea and vomiting. Great. So one thing you brought up right at the beginning was a 17-week pregnant woman coming in for an appendectomy. And I see this on tests all the time, a question like that. And the question that is asked of our trainees taking the test is monitoring. Do you or do you not monitor? And if so, how do you monitor? So talk to me about that. When and how do you monitor these patients? I feel like this is the question that I get most often from colleagues taking care of pregnant women. And it's a complicated question. But thankfully, the ACOG and ASA statement gives us quite a bit of guidance about this issue. For pre-viable fetuses, generally considered less than 24 weeks, but this should be a discussion with the NICU team, generally only pre- and post-op fetal heart tones should be checked. That's it. Just check fetal heart tones before and after the procedure, except in very specific circumstances. For viable fetuses, at minimum, you should monitor with a non-stress test, which is fetal heart monitoring a strip as well as contraction monitoring um, before and after the procedure. This, the thought is that you can detect changes in uterine contraction and fetal heart rate patterns with uterine contraction in the fetus who's potentially viable. And then the ASA ACOG statement says that intraoperatively, one can consider fetal monitoring, so continuous fetal monitoring during the procedure, only if all of the following conditions are met. Not any, but all of the following conditions are met. The fetus has to be viable. While that's a moving target, 17 weeks is not viable. It's physically possible to perform intraop electronic fetal monitoring. 
if you're insufflating the abdomen with CO2, it's going to be pretty unlikely that you're able to get good acoustic contact. If the patient is prone for a spine surgery, it's going to be pretty difficult to perform intra-op fetal monitoring. A healthcare provider with OB surgery privileges has to be available because if you're not going to do anything about it, you probably shouldn't monitor anyway. When possible, the woman has provided consent that allows for emergency cesarean delivery for fetal indications. And additionally, the nature of the planned surgery will allow the interruption or alteration of the procedure to provide access to perform the emergency delivery. If you're doing a mitral valve repair or replacement in a patient who's pregnant, which is a not great situation, uh, you may not want to do a C-section on a fully heparinized patient. In that case, you should think about not monitoring. These are some pretty strict criteria. We certainly shouldn't be monitoring all patients, and we should only monitor if the above criteria are met. But we may want to monitor some patients who don't meet those criteria, but only we should do that if it will change our management. One might decide to monitor for oxygenation, hemodynamic, or positioning reasons. In a procedure where tight BP control is helpful or for cases of permissive hypotension or cases where the patient may need to potentially be fully flat and supine, potentially causing aortic cable compression, um, it can be helpful to assure fetal stability with the specific needs of the procedure in mind. But know that the fetal heart rate's variability may be lost because by and large, when the mom is under anesthesia, so is the fetus. Great. So I really think this has been a great overview, Dave, and thank you for giving it to us. If you had to summarize, how would you kind of put this all together? If you ask me about non-OB surgery and pregnancy in a nutshell, I'd say that overall it's safe, appropriate precautions need to be taken, and drug selection is minimally altered as a result of pregnancy. In a sentence, don't be afraid of pregos. They're just like you and me. Awesome. All right. That is super helpful. Let's turn to the portion of the show where we make random recommendations. So anything you would recommend for the audience, a TV show, a movie, a recipe, anything you've done that you'd recommend, what do you have for them? I recently watched a documentary on a gentleman I know from my time in New York City. Uh, His name is Jacob Appel. Jacob's in his 40s. He's a psychiatrist by training, but also has a JD from Harvard Law School. Um, a PhD, an MPH, an MFA in creative writing, um, MS in something or another, and master's in European history and American history, uh, and is a licensed New York City tour guide. His documentary about his life is called Jacob, and it's on Amazon Prime streaming now. He's a fascinating character, and I think you'll enjoy it. That sounds awesome. I will look forward to checking it out. I am going to recommend I recently watched a documentary called Honeyland. This has been nominated for an Academy Award for uh, the category used to be Best Foreign Language Film. I think it may now be called Best Foreign Film or something like that. But uh, it is about an hour and a half long documentary from Macedonia about a woman who is a kind of traditional beekeeper. She is, uh, you know, hikes up into the mountains in this incredibly beautiful kind of very isolated area and takes care of these bees and knows all about it from having been passed down from her mother. Uh, and then it kind of just they happened to be following her, and coincidentally, they didn't know this was going to happen. This new family moves into kind of the area next door. There's no one else there. They move in next door, 
and it's kind of what happens is this family who is much more trying to kind of industrialize um, their production of honey uh, and how it kind of changes the whole landscape and her life and everything. But it's incredibly beautifully shot and uh, a really poignant story. So I recommend checking that out. It is on uh, Amazon Prime. You can rent it, I think, for 4 or $5, um, or you can purchase it, of course. Uh, but, but really worth it. It's a beautiful documentary. So I have a joke for you. What do you call a wasp? I don't know what. A wannabe. Uh, very good. I've always been impressed with your dad jokes, Dave. Why did the bee go to the barbershop? Uh, I don't know why. Because he wanted to get a buzz cut. Very nice. I wish I had one to hand back to you, but I don't. I think you should beehive. All right. We better stop now. It's getting ugly. All right, Dave, thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Despite the dad jokes, that was a lot of fun. Hopefully you learned a lot. Go to the website, com. Let us know what you thought. You can leave a comment. Others can learn from what you have to say. Of course, you can also join the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we are at ACRAC Podcast. And you can join the Facebook group, ACRAC on Facebook, and join the conversation there. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to iTunes and leaving a comment and a rating. It really helps others find the show. And if you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash accurate. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. Of course, you can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash Thank you so much to those who are already patrons and have already made donations. And, of course, a huge thank you to our intern, Kimmy Akash Cooley, and to Dr. Brian Park and April Liu for making the outline for some of the episodes, and to the composer of our original ACRAC music, that's Dr. Dennis Quo. His website you can check out at studymusicproject.com. All right. That is it for today. For the ACRAC podcast and Dr. Dave Berman, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.